Welcome, everyone, to episode 59 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, I have been told that Scott Harvey will admit to finally, quote, get it regarding the hype around J-Lo, and that's because we'll be reviewing the Lorraine Scafaria-directed crime drama, Hustlers. But first, before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great, but I mean, spoiler alert, come on, uh... Yeah, no, I, I will be sharing my feelings about J-Lo later. I, I will say I did watch Out of Sight, rewatch it fairly recently, and she's great in that movie. That movie really holds up, but yeah. I watched uh, two decades ago. <laughs> yeah, th- no, yeah, fair. But there's the reason we, we waited a while to get to this movie, and it's because uh, it wasn't really something that was super on my radar, and obviously this wasn't a great week for new releases, so... Uh, we decided to check it out, and without spoiling anything, uh, I think we're both pretty glad that we did. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was excited to check it out last week, and I watched it a little bit earlier than you did. Without before we even realized we were doing it, because I was like, you know what, it's got so much hype. All my friends are talking about it. Even friends who, like don't go see movies very often, because I think this is a movie that will get people who don't go see movies very often into the theater if they are particular sensibilities, people our age, I'd say. Um, and yeah. yeah, I was convinced I probably would have eventually checked it out anyway, just based on the critical hype, but my friends definitely convinced me to go see it, you know, sooner rather than later. And my theater was pretty full too on Friday night for a Friday night screening for, of a movie that has been out for like three weeks now. So yeah, it's um, a third weekend. Yeah. So that's, that's cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, why not? Let's just go ahead and get down to business. And that is of course, talking about a movie about how a certain business, well, was booming at least until it wasn't when the great recession hit. Hustlers, directed by Lorraine Scafaria and distributed by STX Films, follows the story of Dorothy, also known as Destiny, a New York City-based stripper played by Constance Wu, who in 2007 is barely getting by and trying to support her aging grandmother before she is brought under the wing of the more experienced Ramona Vega, played by the mesmeric, maybe now iconic, Jennifer Lopez. With her mentor-turned-friend by her side, Dorothy and Ramona form a formidable partnership and clean up at their strip club, frequented by Wall Street bigwigs who willingly part ways with their maybe not hard-earned dollars with reckless abandon. Fast forward a year and the 2008 financial crisis has set in. Then Dorothy becomes pregnant before her boyfriend leaves shortly after their daughter's birth. With few, if any, other options left at her disposal to support herself, her grandmother, and her daughter... Dorothy begrudgingly returns to stripping, but times have changed, and so is the club that she and Ramona had so easily dominated only a couple years before. The rest of the movie follows Dorothy and Ramona as they struggle to navigate this new landscape and the links they'll go to get rich men to give them their money. Scott, did J-Lo and Siwoo's schemes woo you into submission, or did you leave the theater when the credits rolled, simply feeling hustled? Ah, I see what you did there. Um... Yeah, Scott, it's funny because I remember when we saw the trailer for that movie, The Kitchen, we thought, oh, look, this is the Widows of this year. Um, And I think it turns out that Hustlers is the Widows of this year. Um, I think tonally the movies are are pretty different, but 
uh, in terms of uh, the characters and uh, you know just the general setup of the movie. You have this like group of strong females who are you know committing a crime um, to sort of rebel against the system. Um, and I think that theme probably is more apparent in Hustlers than it is in Widows. But uh, I definitely think there are. Uh, some similarities between the two movies, uh, which is something I didn't expect. I definitely didn't expect that Hustlers was going to be the Widows of this year. And what I really didn't expect is that it might even be better than Widows uh, because this is a fantastic movie, Scott. Um, it is entertaining almost from the word go. Uh, and it has something to say, too. Now, I don't know, know that it necessarily uh, has as much to say as it thinks it does. Um, but... Still, for a movie of this type, like, I, again, I would not have gathered this from the trailer. Um, I think the fact that it has anything to say at all and uh, that what it's saying is something fairly profound um, is is a huge accomplishment um, for the director, Lorraine Scafaria, who I think uh, does a wonderful job here uh, directing with a very steady hand there. Uh, visually, the movie is not like going to set your world on fire. Like it, it, it doesn't make a big deal about itself visually, but uh, low key, I really enjoyed uh, some of the visuals in this movie, some of the uh, flashy shots. It's very stylishly filmed. And I, I thought there were some real, some shots that definitely stuck with me after I left the theater. Great cast. Um, we'll talk about some of them uh, in specific details, but I think top to bottom, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, strong actresses in this movie and uh, they all play their individual parts very well with, of course, Constance Wu and uh, Jennifer Lopez topping out um, the cast and, and doing so very effectively uh, for reasons that we'll get into. Uh, but yeah, I, I kept waiting for this movie to sort of let me down uh, because I think it starts out really starts out really hot and then middle has a really entertaining middle section. And then towards the end, I think makes some narrative choices that it needs to make. Um, I think that as fun as that middle section is, um, there were definitely questions that I was asking uh, during this um, section about, you know, where, where's the movie going? I was a little concerned about what maybe the messaging that the movie was going to end up sending. Uh, but ultimately I think it pretty much puts every foot right in that last act which, you know, a lot of movies bungle their third act, uh, but I don't think that this is one of them. I think it strikes exactly the right note in terms of uh, what it needs to say. And more than that, like I said, it's just an entertaining as heck movie. Um, it's the high, it's, it's, you know, a heist movie in some aspects. Uh, it has some good comedy in it. I definitely uh, got more laughs than I was expecting to get. Um, and, it's, it's a crowd pleaser ultimately in the end. I understand why uh, it is, seems to be resonating with audiences a lot because especially I think for a female audience, this is a really entertaining, really charismatic cast and themes that I think uh, will stick with you after you leave the theater. So I really don't have too much bad to say. I absolutely had a blast with this movie um, and I'm excited that so many people are jumping on board. If anything, I'm sorry that I'm sort of late to the party on this one because it's great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really interesting movie, and I, and I find it even interesting to say that audiences are really gravitating toward it, because I think in some ways, I mean, we're in the target audience, right? Like, people our age, maybe with our, with more similar to our sensibilities, because its cinema score is not that great. It got a B cinema score, its audience score is in the 60s, it's well below its critical average. And that, I, I find, I, I think it really does depend on who the viewer is, right? And, and 
you know, if, if you're one of these guys that, you know, you somehow escaped work from your Wall Street bank and you stumble into the theater and watch this movie, you may not enjoy it too much. But yeah. I don't know. At the same time, it, it really is, you know, you talk about the cast being spectacular. I think that's spot on. I think uh, we'll get in, we'll get into the more of the nitty gritty on that end here in a few minutes. But one, some of the things that I want to say is that it, it is very stylish. You know, it doesn't necessarily wow you in, the, in a visual way, like the way Ad Astro, when we talked about it last week, but it wows you in a different way. Um, and it and it really tries to go about that in a different way, I think. It, you talk about it being a heist movie. I definitely think it's a heist movie, that the way they set up some of the scenes where they're talking about their their marks and how they end up stealing the money, even then adds some tension into actually, you know, getting the credit cards, swiping the credit cards, getting them approved to the point where you see this, one of the, like, the recurring shots in the film is just this credit card reader saying approved, mm -hmm. which I just found a very, a very interesting shot to go back to because it's completely yeah. unnecessary to do it. Uh, but I think it really, it really hammers something up. more for sure. Yeah. Yeah, abs absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was a really interesting, interesting way to do it. I also think that, you know, one, two of the two things about this movie that we probably won't get to talk about because it doesn't really fit in our normal format. But I think that this is a top contender for best use of music in a movie so far this year. I thought the scene with, oh, is it? I think, yeah, it's Royals is a great scene set to music. And then to top it all is the last line of the movie is a complete is a complete thinker, and it, it's a showstopper. It's a mic drop. It's everything, uh, and you know you, you're you're about ready to get up out of your seat and head out, and then you just get kind of cemented to your chair by the final line. You're like, "Oh God, <laughs> what's happening?" Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's an absolutely uh, incredible final final line, and we, maybe we can talk more about it later. Although it's not super spoilery either to talk about it now. Uh, it's just a really. It's I think it's it's a movie that it. it it really it met the expectations that I had for it in the ways that I expected. I mean, everything I heard about Jennifer Lopez, everything I heard about the story it was telling, and then it exceeded in so many other aspects. It exceeded in the in the narrative style. I think you're spot on talking about how uh, it really nails the third act. And and one of the things that I guess we I didn't really mention in the in the primer for this discussion is that this movie is set from a perspective of Constance Wu's character Dorothy looking back on these events several years later being interviewed by Julia Stiles' character who's a reporter uh, and telling the story about what happened. And, and it's really set in this kind of retrospective per, um, as, a, as a retrospective on this time and, and an analysis of this kind of relationship between Dorothy and Ramona and also where that leaves them now. And I, and I really do think it was an excellent way to frame that story because yeah, the entertaining part of the movie is that is what's being reflected upon but I think the narrative drive of the movie is totally centered around, uh, or one of the key narrative drives of this movie is totally centered around what's happening in the present tense, so to speak. And, and I thought that was done really well. Yeah, no, it's not the most original way to tell this type of story, for sure. We've seen this done before, but it's still effective um, because you do have the whole suspense of, well, hey, obviously something uh, has gone wrong. Obviously things have drastically changed between the past, what we're seeing from the past and uh, the the present narrative. Because of course, uh, you know, this was based on, you might've mentioned this, but it's based on a New York Magazine article. I, and I assume that's the article that is the subject of these scenes that Julia Stiles is writing. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. I actually didn't mention that, so that's yeah. good to bring up. But one other thing I'll say, as far as spoilers go, honestly, if you haven't seen this movie yet, just stop listening because I think the less you know about this movie um, and about, how successful the movie is, honestly, then uh, the better off you will be. Because I think I didn't know a whole lot going into the movie except for a general setup 
and certainly didn't know anything about the true story. Um, and I yeah, think the setup is that it has JLo and it has strippers. And it's like, that's basically <laughs> what most people I well, like. Well, I knew that there was a heist element to it yeah, as well, yeah, but yeah. that's about it. <laughs> but yeah, I think the less you know, the better. Keep that, keep that in mind. Uh, if you haven't listened to the, or if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, I recommend uh, coming back after you have seen the movie because I think you'll enjoy it the most um, if you know very little going in. Uh, and now you've heard our general impressions, you know we think it's worth seeing. So just go see it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with that, why don't we just go ahead and, and dive into to, to the nitty gritty? We talked about those two lead performances in Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. I know Constance Wu is technically the lead of this movie, and we will yeah. talk about her in a second. But I think you have to start with Jennifer Lopez's uh, Ramona as really the the person that we have to talk about first, Scott. So what did you think of this performance from JLo? What did you think of this character of Ramona? Yeah, it's funny because this is going to be one of those performances that is going to be, they're going to lobby for it in the supporting actress category. But this is a leading actress performance. I mean, yes, Constance Wu is like the protagonist of the movie, but JLo is in almost every scene that Constance Wu is also in. So... She, she has a large bulk of the screen time, um, especially when you compare it to some past supporting actress winners. Uh, but this seems to be the trend, right? Like Mahershala yeah, Ali. Yeah, like, yeah, Mahershala, that's a good example. Judy Dench, of course, was only in nine minutes of Shakespeare in Love. That was the shortest one ever. But um, if you think like about Mahershala Ali last year, like he was a lead in Green Book, but they, they, you know, market, or they lobbied so that they could get both actors nominated and it ended up paying off because he got the supporting actor performance. And yeah, that makes sense. If you have someone who's in 45 minutes of the movie versus someone who's in nine minutes of the movie, um, you know, you're probably gonna pick the person who's in more of the movie, but that's neither here nor there. As far as JLo goes, uh, Scott, as you alluded to up front, not only have I not been a fan of JLo, but I think I've like actively not liked a lot of the stuff that she has done. And also just sort of the way that she presents herself when she was a judge on American Idol, I found her really obnoxious and annoying and not acting her age. Uh, it sounds a very strange way uh, to describe it, but that's that's the best way I can think of to describe it. Um, she was just a little a little too silly. And, and I will say too that JLo is obviously a sex symbol and people talk about her being like one of the most beautiful women in the world. And while I recognize that she is, like, I, I fully recognize that she is, I, like, I've never been, like, super, like, attracted to her or anything. Um, but with all of that in mind, right, the very first scene when she comes on screen, um, and if you've seen the movie, you know the scene. After the scene was over, I was like, for the first time in my life, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, I get what, what the big deal about JLo is. We, we've been watching the Star Wars movies for our Star Wars series. It's like the Darth Vader entrance, right? Like the second she comes on, it's like, bang, this is someone uh, that you need to pay attention to right here. And you talk about a great use of music. That scene has a great use of music um, with the Fiona Apple song, Criminal, which I never would have imagined as the backdrop to a scene of someone stripping, but uh, or at least pole dancing. Um, but it works really well and is actually, uh, you know, so there's some foreshadowing there uh, for what's to come. Perhaps not the most subtle um, foreshadowing, but it is there. And that, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but overall, I think she does a great job throughout the movie. And one of the reasons that I think it, it's effective is because to some degree, I think she is playing herself. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, make no mistake, like we talked about last year, Scott, one of my favorite performances from last year, supporting actress performances that went, uh, unfortunately unnoticed, was Anne Hathaway in Ocean's 8. And we talked about how she was kind of playing herself here or in that movie. And I think you could say the same about J-Lo here, but that's fine because it works. It really fits the movie. And I think that's why it's so effective because 
right? Just like JLo is one of those people who, with her very name, with her very presence, like has a room in the palm of her hand. The same thing is true of Ramona, right? We see it from the very beginning in that first scene. She walks on stage and and men are already, you know, tossing singles uh, by the dozens at her on stage. Um, she has everyone in the palm of her hand, including us as the audience. Uh, and that's really important to the character of Ramona because, you know, we have to believe that she is this sort of cosmic force that is just sucking all of these women in um, and getting them involved in her scheme. Um, and it works because it's JLo, right? Because that's how people are with JLo in real life. Um, and so I think that uh, it was a very smart bit of casting, uh, and J Lo plays it exactly right. Um, she doesn't try to do. She doesn't try to. She doesn't go over the top with it, which I think um, there could have been a tendency to do that. And yeah, um, it's kind of like a. Uh, in some moments, it's like a sort of Mr. Miyagi role early on, uh, which I think she does well. But then later on, uh, the character goes in some interesting directions, not necessarily that she JLo changes anything in her performance, but it's more we, we as the audience change the way that we look at her. Um, and so I think that's, uh, a, again, a credit to JLo's performance um, that she doesn't do anything different, but we're seeing uh, the character in a whole different way down the stretch of the movie uh, as, as, as she evolves as a character. And I think there are a lot of layers to this character. She's not just uh, a superficial exterior. Um, there's a lot there. And so, I thought this was a great performance, Scott. Um, I never thought I would say it, but the Oscar buzz for JLo is legit, and I do hope she gets a nomination for sure. Yeah, I mean, she's she's proving that she's the real deal in this movie. I think that, you know, just, just to go immediately off one of your last points, I think that you're talking about how your perception of Ramona evolves over the course of the film, and I think that that is really breaking down what I think a lot of people have in terms of stereotypes around, you know, people who are strippers in nightclubs. Right. And I think that, you know, the first time that, that happens, you know, I, I guess the guys to back up a second, you know, right after that scene that you're talking about, which is an incredibly striking scene, you talk about stylishly shot um, the, the music, the music gets set to the actual pole dancing itself. And then the, the visual image of, you know, these people just throwing money, at her, which you don't see when, you know, the first group of strippers with Constance Wu walk out. It's like, you know, she, you know, you got this clear picture that she's the real deal. And then, you know, Constance Wu goes upstairs to smoke a cigarette on the roof and sees Ramon out there just splayed across the roof in this massive fur coat. And it's an incredible image itself. And then shortly after that, the first time you, you really have that break in the perception is when you see her go home uh, with Constance. No, they're at, they're at, Ramona's house and her daughter and her babysitter come home and you're just like, wow, this is not the person like this man. This is not the person that I thought this was based on those stereotypes. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I imagine a lot of other people probably, if not, not necessarily, it's not a jarring uh, perception adjustment, but you really notice immediately and you kind of have to check yourself. And I think you get that over the course of the entire film in different ways in both directions too. Cause you know, you think you have an idea of who Ramona is and then she does something completely different and, and really goes like a turn, you know, turns left when you think she's going to turn right. You know, you think she has this really strong uh, relationship with Constance Wu with Constance Wu's character, Dorothy. And then all of a sudden something else happens and you're just like, well, that's really not what I expected she would be like. But the whole time you're questioning your perception, but you're not questioning the authenticity of the performance. And I think that's what Jennifer Lopez 
uh, is able to do so well. And that's what, you know, these writers are able to do so well. And Lorraine Scafari is able to do so well with this character is that, you know, yes, you know, you have everything that's going on. Some of it's really messed up. Some of it's understandable. But what you get in this final part is this really complex character. You talk about a character with layers who at the end of the day, it's just someone who's you know a human being really struggling to deal with the circumstances that she's dealt. Sometimes she makes the best of it, sometimes she doesn't. And what you're left with is this really interesting story about how this person is navigating her life. And really interested to see how it's juxtaposed to how Constance Wu and Dorothy is dealing with her life because their lives in some ways by you know halfway through the film or a third of the way through the film aren't that different anymore. You know, they both have a kid. They both are single parents or yeah, they're both single parents. One of them, you know, of course, Ramona appears more wealthy and more well-off, uh, certainly, you know, at a certain point in the movie than Dorothy is. But at the end of the day, they're kind of dealing with the same with the same life circumstances, and they ultimately deal with it in a very different way. And I think on both sides of that coin, but specifically with Jennifer Lopez's performance and Ramona as a character, I think it's just an, inc it's an incredible job. You talk about the image of the money, too, going on stage. I think that's a striking image throughout. One of the shots that I really like... Um, is that towards the very end, and we've already lifted spoilers, so um, when Ramona is arrested and she's just pulled cash out of the ATM and she holds the her hands up in the air to surrender to the police and the, all of the cash flies out, great shot, um, and calls to mind, right, like the men throwing the money at her on stage. Um, I think, And I think there's, uh, you know, a lot to be said there about um, who this character is and that maybe... Uh, Constance Wu is uh, as much of a pawn as the men that um, they are trying to scheme are. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a part of the of the narrative of this movie about you know everyone who kind of gets caught in Ramona's web, so to speak, are really just pawns in her game. And I'm glad that you already have mentioned the part of the movie that ha is set to Royals because that is the scene that's set to yeah. Royals uh, when she's at the ATM and being arrested. But yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. And unless you want to add anything else, I think it probably, probably segues well into talking about Constance Wu's Dorothy, uh, her stripper name, her stage name being Destiny. Scott, was this, I guess I'll back up a second. Uh, we saw her last year in Crazy Rich Asians and she isn't Rachel anymore. Yeah. Uh, she's not, I can't remember her character from Off the Boat, although I know she doesn't want to play that character anymore from her Twitter rant after that <laughs> show got renewed. Uh, but I think this is the kind of role and this is the kind of movie, you know, to, to go off that and be a little bit more serious. I think this is the kind of role and the kind of movie she wants to be doing instead of Off the Boat. And uh, I, I assume that her rant had to do with the fact that she had to give up certain projects to go back and film Off the Boat. But what did you think of this performance? It, does she fit kind of seamlessly into this type of role? Because it's such, you know, it's such a dichotomy compared to what we saw her in last year. Yeah, no, I totally think she does. I think this is the second summer in a row now where we've seen her in a movie that uh, we weren't expecting to be something that we loved. And then it did turn out to be, you know, you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, I think that to a lesser degree, I think Hustlers is a better film, but so, so I think she's really making her name doing that kind of stuff. And I do think this is a great performance. It's definitely different from the JLo performance because this is the, her character is the emotional hook of the movie, right? Like she has to make us care about her and about what she's going through from the very beginning. And I think she absolutely does that. I've seen some people criticizing her performance and I don't really get that because I thought uh, she definitely held her own with the rest of the cast. I think early on, there's a sort of naivety to her performance um, which is very effective because um, 
you know, we, we have to we have to believe that this character uh, would get sucked in by Jayla. Not not that it seems like it's very hard, but still the fact that she is so naive, not not only about like the whole world of ripping these people off, but just about being an exotic dancer in general. Um, she doesn't know very much at all about that. And J-Lo sort of becomes her entry into not only that world, but then, uh, you know, the the underbelly of that, uh, which is where the crime starts to come into play. But I, like I said, I think she, she makes you care about her in her relationships with the other characters as well. Um, and in particular, her grandmother, right, who plays a small but important role in the movie. Um, and then her daughter, Lily, who gets born about halfway through the movie. I think those relationships, maybe for reasons that we'll get into, like, um, are one of the big things that differentiates her from the JLo character. So it's really important that uh, she makes the those uh, relationships count and makes the you know, few scenes that she has with those characters um, count and you know, m make us believe in those relationships and believe in her as a character. And I did um, believe that throughout. And I believed her transition right from that naivety to someone who, um, I get, you know, looks back on this time of her life with uh, a great amount of regret, seemingly having learned a lot from the experiences that she had and definitely more of a take charge character in the end um, in, in terms of her scenes with Julia Stiles, uh, which I also thought were effective. Um, she's clearly changed a lot in those scenes. Um, and I think we see why and, and Constance Wu is a big credit uh, and it's a big credit to Constance Wu. So um, yeah, I don't get the, the people who are ragging on this performance. It's not, I don't mean, I don't think there's that many people, but I have seen a few reviews uh, that maybe have been a little more critical of her but I think their critiques tend to focus more on uh, the script and the way the relationship between her and Jayla was set up. But that's something we could talk about maybe. I think the performance is excellent. Yeah, I, I think Constance Wu is really good. And I, I'm, I'm actually, in, in some ways, I find this character, Dorothy, a more interesting one to think about after the fact and really start to dig in a little bit as to like, all right, what's her deal? I mean, the story is told from her perspective. We don't ever really get... I mean, I guess the very end is technically an interview with Ramona, but 90 plus percent of this movie is told from the perspective of Dorothy looking back on this time. And I definitely agree that she's looking back at least with a tinge of regret, right? And, and definitely wishing that some things were differently. And I think that there's this element almost of, you know, can you trust this narrative being told by her? Is she trying to make herself seem better than Ramona, so to speak? in parts of it. Cause I think that the way this film portrays these characters, especially, you know, after she returns to the world, uh, you know, of exotic dancing goes back to the nightclub after, you know, she has her daughter and, and her boyfriend leaves her. And I think that what, you know, what I have been thinking about more since leaving the theater is, you know, okay. She's set up as this person who cares about the rest of the people in this crew where Ramona is just like trying to make a buck right and like trying to hustle people and she's the one who's like yes i want to make money but ultimately like family comes first these people are my family i care about these you know these girls who, who i'm doing this work with and i think that one of the things that i come back to is i'm not actually sure what to think of it i'm not actually sure if we're if you know the truth so to speak is is that she is someone who is better than ramona or maybe they're really the same person and i think that's kind of also what the narrative is getting at at the end in the final part when Ramona's talking about, you know, this girl, Dorothy, 
destiny is the only girl I could really trust. And I think that that is telling to think that like Ramona views her as very similar to herself. And I think that you see that in terms of their particular positions. I mean, they both have their daughters, you know, okay, yes, Dorothy has her grandmother and Ramona doesn't, but I think there's a lot of comparisons meant to be drawn. And then uh, you have these, they have different roles in the, in the gang, so to speak. And I wonder if how much of those roles were actually different in the grand scheme of things, or if it's just the, fact that the story is being told from Constance Wu's perspective. And I think that, you know, to go back to the performance, I think that the performance really lends itself to that because you have, you know, this person, both in terms of, you know, when we're flashing back to when what's happening, you talk about the naivete, I think she captures that perfectly. But also in the moment, yes, she, you know, she's someone who still is questioning what she's done is still not, I mean, definitely not proud of what she did. But she's also someone who I think still knows what's going on. I mean, she's acutely aware of, you know, what, even though I think she tries to, I think she's acutely aware of what Julia Stiles' character is, is trying to do. And I think there's certain moments where she like plays it off as like, oh, you talked to Ramona. Uh, and I think that that's an interesting, it was, I think there's a lot going on there that, you know, maybe I'm overreading the situation, but that part of the performance has kind of stuck with me more because of that. I mean, you talk about Jennifer Lopez's performance kind of sticking with me for what it was in the, in the, in the retrospective. And I think Constance Wu's performance in particular sticks with me for what's happening in the present. Yeah. And, you know, maybe to that point, um, e even after everything that has happened um, between the two of them and, you know, they haven't spoken in some time at the end of the movie, uh, it seems like, Constance Wu, uh, she's still uh, very focused on Ramona and still sucked in by Ramona because she calls Julia Stiles up randomly and is just like, what else did Ramona say about me? Um, she's still obsessed with what Ramona thinks, even after everything they've been through. Um, so maybe there's maybe she sees yeah. some of herself in that uh, character. And that's why um, I, I would tend to... Uh, go a little bit in the other direction. I think that the movie um, does, uh, while, while like literally they do have some similarities, like you said, their daughters, uh, maybe their social position, stuff like that. Um, I think that there's a clear distinction um, in terms of where their prior, where the, where each of their priorities lie um, that ultimately makes the characters diverge in the end. And I mean, I think does make, Dorothy, the more sympathetic character that she is supposed to be. Yeah. But I agree with you, you know, to, to some extent that there is, um, there, there are some layers there too. I think it, it's probably a little bit simplistic just to say, well, Dorothy's the good guy and uh, Ramon is the bad guy. No, I think that that, that is definitely true. I, I, I think I, I just take pause with the, with what you're saying and, and how it's articulated because the entire story is just told from Dorothy's perspective. And so yeah. I think that I, if you read it for what is seen on screen, I think that is an absolutely accurate interpretation. And I'm not saying that my take is right either. I'm just saying yeah. it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, and because I, I do think, and one of the things that I want to talk about here in a moment is, you know, this concept of that that Dorothy is still obsessed, maybe obsessed is a strong word, but still very interested in what, Ramona thinks of her and is doing and is saying about her. And it really reminds, you know, and that whole concept of like toxic relationships and toxic friendships and how sometimes it's just, it's really hard to let go of those. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just something that I didn't expect when I was watching the movie to stick with me, but it's one of the things I've been thinking more about. Yeah, no, totally. I think you're, that is very good to point out that uh, this is Dorothy who is telling the story. Um, because also like, 
I did see a couple things afterwards about the real life story that like Ramona, the real Ramona came she's out like that, suing STX. Yeah. She, well, she's saying that like they weren't even friends in real life. So uh, there is, I would, I definitely think there's more to it than what we saw in this movie, but um, who cares? Maybe that's the, maybe that's the point. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. That, that's a little bit flippant of me. People care, but yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, what what a shocker. Adaptations to a movie don't 100% follow the real life events. Yeah. You're telling me Vice didn't happen exactly like that? Uh, amazingly, no. They didn't actually speak in Shakespeare to each other in bed. And they didn't have the voiceover either? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, whatever. Lame. Would have been cooler. Anyway, yeah, so moving on, before we do talk about some of those themes that we were just alluding to, there is a robust supporting cast that is very good, to your point exactly. And so, you know, I want to just give you a second to shout out one person the supporting cast. Could be Kiki Palmer, Lily Reinhart, Julia Stiles. We've already mentioned Lizzo, Cardi B. The list is pretty long, goes further than that. But I'll turn it over to you to talk about your one person you'd like to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's going to be a toss-up between uh, Kiki Palmer and Lily Reinhart, but... Uh, because they are, I guess, the two main supporting characters that kind of, um, you know, join in, join the gang um, during this middle stretch of the movie when they're uh, having most of their success. Um, but I'll give it to, ooh, it's a close call. Cardi B. I do think Cardi B makes the most of her like six or seven minutes on screen. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, with that being said, I'm glad it was only six or seven minutes. Um, but I'll give it to Lily Reinhardt. I think that the the gag of her throwing up is pretty That's hilarious. Um, and it's a mood. Yeah, it 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 is. Um, and I like this character. Um, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of substance there to Annabelle, which is her character. Um, but uh, I I think she plays it well, and I like seeing her in a different context outside of uh, Riverdale, which of course is where she's uh, mainly known from. Yeah, I, I think she provides an interest. Uh, if she's another point on the continuum of like Ramona and then Dorothy, and then I think like in naivete and knows what's going on, right? I think that I think Lily Reinhardt is like the far end of that spectrum from Ramona, and then you have Dorothy, uh, Constance Wu's character, somewhere in the middle. And so, you know, I appreciated that. I, I never stopped laughing whenever she vomited uh, on screen. So it worked for me. Yeah, for me, I think that I would I would have chosen Lily Reinhardt as well. So I'll give you the time and the spotlight to talk about the other person who I think is the main supporting role. So that's Kiki Palmer. I think she does a really good job. I'm not, again, not dissimilar to Lily Reinhardt. I don't know if there's much of a point to the character other than just to kind of be there and be some kind of foil uh, for these two leads. And um, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to. Uh, we can talk. You can talk about Kiki Palmer if you want, but I'll go with the grandmother. I actually don't even know who plays the grandmother. I think that the scene, the Christmas scene is just such a wonderful scene and the grandmother is such a big part of it that it, it's hard maybe to go in any other direction than that. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think, um, I mean, yeah, I think Kiki Palmer is good, but there's, you know, there's not that much to add there. Kind of like with Lily Reinhardt. I, we don't find out a whole lot about this character. Uh, and I don't think it's that important that we do. Um, that the story isn't really about this character. Um, she, she plays an important role in it, but um I don't think we need to know much more than we do now. Uh, and, you know, she she gets some good comedy in the same way that Lily Reinhardt does. I love the part where she's talking about chicken wings with, I forget which character it is, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I agreed. It's uh, those two kind of main supporting roles are just there, just there to fill up the cast in some ways. And I don't even mean that in a negative way. 
Um, they're just there to, to fill, up, fill up the screen and, and be a part of those scenes because those scenes just need a few more characters and they do a good job. And the police detectives were funny too. Yes, they were. Talking about how, well, we're never going to go. We, we don't even feel like going back to the club again <laughs> or whatever they said at the end after they've exposed the whole uh, scheme. Yeah. They're like, we're, we don't feel comfortable going back to the club again. <laughs> That's when like Julia Stiles is worried that like right, yeah. when she's handing her the tea or whatever, one of the opening scenes, are you worried that I drugged it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on from that, you know, the rest of the conversation really, and I think, I just wanted to talk about some of these things that, you know, this, this movie kind of airs and, and to start with, you know, we mentioned the toxic, unhealthy friendships already. So no better place to start than there. What, I mean, what did you think of how this relationship is portrayed over time? And then I think this is also like an appropriate time to rope in that ending where you have the situation where, you know, you kind of brought it up already. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I definitely think that, you're you're right to to call it a toxic friendship because like you said she keeps getting sucked back in even though this um even though this relationship is is not good for her but i think there's there's still those memories there of um the good times that they had right because like um these characters and ramona in particular become her family um and i think ramona really uses that to her benefit the fact that um Constance Wu that Dorothy is really looking for um, friends and looking for a family that she can connect to because of course her family um, her her mother left her as a, as a young child um, and that's why she's been with her grandmother all this time um, and uh, so she she's never really had uh, a quote unquote family and she finds that in Ramona and in in the rest of the crew but particularly Ramona. Uh, who goes out of her way to make her feel special, right? Like that Christmas scene you talk about, she, she tells her right there, like, you know, it, can, it we don't need any of these people. It's just you and me. We only need you and me. Um, and so I think when I hear that final part about uh, where she's saying Dorothy's the only person I could trust, I, I just don't know how much I believe Ramona. Um, I think that to me, Dorothy was still just uh, a tool the whole time. And um, that, Maybe Ramona, you know, you, you talk about how maybe Dorothy's saying certain things to portray herself in a certain way because uh, she is talking to a reporter. I, I wonder if Ramona is kind of doing the same thing in this um, final scene. If she she's trying to, uh, because uh, we do see her like elsewhere in the scene, she's complimenting Julia Stiles. Like she's trying to work her magic on Julia Stiles as well. Um, she's not just complimenting; she's saying the exact same thing that she said right. to to uh, Dorothy at the beginning of the film. So I don't know how much that plays into it, but um, after the way that this character unravels, uh, it's hard for me to believe uh, much of what she says. And I'm sure you you have a different perspective there and I'd be interested to hear what that is. Uh, But I think ultimately the the place that this um, friendship sort of diverges is like I was saying earlier, their priorities are different, right? Even though, they both have, they're, they're both in similar places. Um, like Ramona seems strictly self-interested the entire time. Um, she wants the personal gain aspect of it. She doesn't think about things like, uh, the guy, like for example, the guy, Doug, who really is, uh, really when their friendship starts to, to unravel, uh, because this guy is kind of just, um, a lonely guy who connects with, 
Um, Dorothy, right? Because Dorothy is kind of a lonely person as well. Um, and, you know, it isn't really as guilty probably as some of their other victims were. Um, but Ramona just doesn't really care, right? She, she doesn't care about the, you know, the feelings of the victims. Um, and, uh, you know, and so they, they get in a huge argument over this. Um, and of course, Doug leads to them getting arrested, but even in her own life too, like Ramona, the, the relationships between the two women and their respective daughters, I think, uh, say a lot as well, because, uh, Dorothy really cares about Lily. And at the end of the movie, when they have that embrace there uh, after Dorothy has taken the deal um, and Ramona is just irate with Dorothy because she can't understand why she's given her up. Um, and Dorothy just says, you know, it, it was because of Lily. I have Lily. And Ramona still just can't seem to understand that. Uh, and we see that in the movie, right? Like the first time we're introduced to this daughter is like a solid 40, 45 minutes into the movie. Like Ramona has never mentioned her before. Uh, it kind of just comes out of nowhere that she even has a daughter. Um, and that's because I think Ramona doesn't really care that much about her. And uh, the only other time we really see the daughter is um, it, when they're like partying one night and the daughter comes out, like has obviously been asleep. Like it's the middle of the night in their apartment. Uh, and again, I think that just shows like Dorothy, um, I mean, Ramona is just behaving with no thoughts whatsoever as to um, the well-being of her daughter. Uh, and I think that's kind of where the characters diverge. I mean, one is self-interested and one, while understanding um, that what they're doing, uh, you know, Ramona understands that what they're doing are, is wrong, um, but again, is self-interested. Whereas I think Dorothy sees it as a means to an end, um, with that end being not monetary gain but um you know being personally fulfilled a stable life yes yeah no i don't think i disagree with any any of that take and i think you're making some some really really good points about the comparison between how they treat or how they think about and how they talk about their daughters i think it's not something that i had really thought too much about and i think that's a, a really good point or at least not thought about in that way and yeah I, th I think that is an interesting point you know I definitely agree with what you were saying around the last scene around how Ramona is kind of spinning, trying, you know, trying to spin her web and, and, and trap Julia Stiles in that web. Not unlike she's trapped, you know, all these girls before. And, you know, we have no idea whether that ends up working or not. At the same time, I'm not totally, I agree that you, you aren't sure whether you can trust everything she's saying, yeah. but at the same time, is it, isn't it also possible that she's being honest that like she saw a lot of herself and that she thought she could trust Dorothy more than anyone else. I think that's also possible that that is true. I do think that the characters ultimately do diverge, and I'm pretty convinced by the argument you're making there around around the kids, because I think that, you know, yes, again, it's all told from, I know I said this earlier already, but it's all told from Dorothy's perspective, but you can't just, I, I think it, it, it'd be going too far to try to disregard the, the stuff you're saying about, you know, how Ramona introduces her her child, or I should say unwillingly almost, you know, the fact that her daughter just crops up in the situation. Like she yeah. just happens to, she always just happens to walk into the room and is not necessarily invited or brought into the room, so to speak. And I think that that's a really telling way in which this diverges. And the, the toxic friendship part, to kind of go back to, to, to that, I think that it's, it, it really is an interesting story about this because, you know, she was a part of that and it wasn't as maybe toxic as it, as it, eventually got to in the beginning because everything was so to speak above board 
yes, maybe they were exploiting men, but they were they were willing participants in that exploitation, maybe uh, at the start. And then she gets out of that life. What she comes to is not that great either with her boyfriend and then getting pregnant, having her daughter and her boyfriend leaving. But then, you know, having to be forced back into that initially, almost like, you know, an uncontrolled, you know, um, or an uncontrollable situation forcing you back into something that maybe isn't the healthiest thing for you. And you know that and you don't necessarily want to go back to it. Then you go back to it. And then now that you've been a part of it, you've been a part of it for so long. And, you know, it wasn't just a year anymore. It was five, six years as a part of that before everything kind of came crashing down. Or I don't know how many years exactly was, but, you know, at least three or four years. And now you're a little bit more removed from it, but you still think about it. You still, you don't necessarily want to go back to that life, but you do remember all the positives and you certainly want to be connected to those people on this particular point is is Ramona but you know that if you went back to it it, it would be nothing but bad news and I, I just think that it's an interesting portrayal I don't think they necessarily nail it perfectly in my mind but I think it asks a lot of hard questions and you know not you can't answer every question you ask in a movie always and it's not always good to answer those questions so yeah and to go back to what you were saying at first I think that if the movie was trying to um Imply that, about Dorothy. Yeah. imply that there's some kind of connection between Dorothy and Ramona. Um, wh whereas they see their self, R Ramona sees herself and Dorothy a little bit. I think that there is, there's a little bit of a deficiency there in the storytelling, because I don't think that uh, that comes across well enough uh, mm -hmm. because I think like, and, and this is an area some people have criticized, criticized they didn't really believe a lot of the relationship between uh, these two women. And I don't feel that way, but I did think in, in the very first scene where they meet each other on the roof of the, uh, the club and they're like, a, they do immediately. Like it does happen very fast. I think that maybe one small critique I would have, it happens very fast. And I did wonder at first, like, why, like, why, why is JLo like giving her the time of day? Like, why is she taking to this character and really befriending this character and trying to help this character? But I think that what the movie goes on to say is like, this is what she does, right? Like she sucks these people in. She latches on to vulnerable people, right? Because we have this other character we haven't talked about, Dawn, who ends up being the one who um, kind of rats them out. Um, and is, you know, th there comes a point where Dorothy and um, Ramona have this argument about like, hey, we don't need to be taking any more people in here, certainly not these common criminals like Dawn. And and Ramona just doesn't listen, right? Like this is what she does. She just picks up strays. And so that was kind of the explanation. Yeah, that was kind of the explanation to me as to why um, she took to Dorothy more so mm -hmm. than kind of what you were saying about um, that she saw herself in Dorothy, saw herself in Dorothy a little bit. I don't disagree that that may be part of the intent and there may be a little bit there if you look harder um but i just think if they were trying to uh if that was trying to be one of the themes of the movie maybe they could have done a little better job with the storytelling uh in that aspect yeah no I, i'd agree with that i don't think it's it wouldn't be wholesale i i agree that the movie presents a pretty compelling argument that the reason that they their relationship initially starts is that jlo or ramona thinks that she can exploit exploit destiny exploit exploit dorothy that's why it starts i just wonder if it, it evolves over the course of the film when i'm not saying that i'm totally convinced because I, I think that the points you're making are pretty compelling but i i wonder if over the course of the film uh you know when she becomes less naive and more aware of what's going on and how they are 
exploiting these men to, you know, for their financial benefit. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if the story is also saying, you know, maybe maybe that relationship evolves a little bit. But at the same time, I still definitely see what you're saying. And I think that I I think that I on the whole agree with that. Yeah. Interesting cool. so discussion the, to have. Yeah, no, I think I think it is. And I think another interesting discussion worth having, you know, kind of ties back to that very last line that we've both alluded to in the movie. You know, I, I actually it's been too long now, but you watched this movie yesterday, so maybe you can remember the line exactly, but something to the effect of, you know, the world's it's, everyone out there is a hustler. Yeah, this this whole this whole country is a strip club. You got people throwing the tossing the money and you got people doing the dance. Great line, and I and I, I think it, I think that this kind of second conversation topic to, to kind of close out our discussion here uh, relates back to that, and it's like, does this movie glorify what you know what these women are doing? Does it glorify crime? Were the women wrong to do what they did, or were they just playing their part uh, in kind of great American society where they were trying to become rather than uh, the people, rather than I guess it, it, there's even a conversation about what each role is, right? They, they were rather than you know being people who are throwing the money where they you know, trying to blur the lines of people trying to, you know, being the people who are doing the dance. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and talking about that last line, right in a vacuum, the line is, is really cool and sounds great. Um, but I think that uh, what makes it work so well is that like, it's not inconsistent with the movie that we've seen before, right? Like it'd be one thing to have that line at the end and it's like, Oh, that's a really interesting idea, but they didn't really do anything in this movie to set that up. I don't think that's the case here. I think that uh, that is reflected by what we have seen in the movie that comes before that final line. So good on them for that. But to answer your question about whether does this movie glorify what they're doing uh, in short, no. And I think that's the right move. I think when I talked earlier on about the direction that the story takes in the third act in terms of its messaging, I think that uh, that was some of the concern I was having, right? Uh, especially uh, that Christmas scene maybe is the peak of where it's like, life is good. We're all friends. Um, we're making money. You know, this is wonderful. Um, and I was like, okay, like, yes, uh, absolutely. 100% on a degree, uh, on a certain level, uh, you are supposed to empathize with these characters because to your point, like they're doing what they're doing because uh, of the system. Uh, and, and so that is, is absolutely part of it, but there was still that concern to me, like, you know, are we really supposed to see these people as heroes? Are we really supposed to see them as role models? And I, Cause I don't think we are right. They're still performing. Uh, they're still committing crimes. They're still taking advantage of people. Um, may, maybe these people are uh, bad people. Yes. But uh, I, it, it's kind of a two wrongs don't make a right situation to some extent. Like um, they're taking advantage of these people in the same way that these people are taking advantage of, uh, the little guy in their, from their high positions on wall street. Um, and so that's why I think that the movie gets it right in the third act, right? Because it all comes crumbling down and, uh, no character gets away scot-free. Uh, and you know, as I've, I talked about it before, but they introduced that character of Doug, which I think, um, is really important to, uh, you know, the, the idea that they're not glorifying what these women have done, right? Because we see that this is a guy who, um, was just kind of a sad, lonely guy and, um, you know, probably didn't deserve to be taken advantage of. Uh, it w wasn't the sort of pantomime villain that a lot of these other uh, sort of Wall Street um, figures that we see throughout the movie uh, does. And that that just kind of uh, goes to the idea that, right, like, 
oh, wait, this actually isn't as morally cut and dry as maybe it uh, has appeared throughout some of the movie. Like, yeah, of course, the Wall Street guys, they're all corrupt. Like, they they deserve it. Um, and by introducing that Doug character in the end, I think we're meant to question, well, actually, you know, aren't they just doing to some doing doing a variation uh, on the very sort of activity that they're criticizing um, these these Wall Street types for doing. Um, and so ultimately, I think, again, it strikes the right balance between, yes, we empathize with these people uh, and we see the systemic problems that have led them to this life. Um, but that doesn't mean that the choices that they that they that they have made um, are the right choices, are choices that people should aspire to. Um, and uh, it's just it's not that simple. Th these people aren't meant to be heroes. And I think that's that's the right balance to strike in the end. Yeah, I, I very much felt like out of the theater that the movie's position was that, you know, uh, to no one's surprise, what people on Wall Street did leading up to the financial crisis in 2008 was morally bankrupt and, and you know, worth t not necessarily taking advantage of, but but like worthy of ridicule, right? And at the same time, I didn't feel, to your point exactly, and I, I agree with you, I didn't feel like it was also trying to glorify taking advantage of those people because it, it you know maybe it wasn't the most nuanced way of painting the picture of you know not every not everything is so morally cut and dry i don't think i think that they maybe could have done a better job on that front but that character is really important because then you understand you know not everyone on wall street is the pantomime villain that you know you're alluding to that you're describing and so there is a place to criticize what they did and also criticized what you know what these characters in our in in the movie here these lead characters are doing doing to those people, you know, in response, so to speak. I mean, of course, it's not directly in response, but, you know, it's it's painted in a picture that way. And so I, I guess, yeah, you know, can you fault them for trying to assert their place in the world as either a person throwing money or a person doing the dance? I think that's a more, maybe a more new, maybe an even more nuanced and even more interesting question to talk about. But I don't even know if I'm necessarily, if this movie takes a, takes a state a stance on that either. Just the fact that, you know, maybe when you, I, I, again, I'm not even sure that that's accurate. Uh, I go back and forth. I think it's interesting, right? Because the, these people are, you know, quite literally doing the dance. It's like what their role is at the beginning of the movie. And they're trying to aspire to become the person who's throwing the money. And to some extent they do that. Like you mentioned that Christmas party scene, you know, that is the equivalent of like, let's all just go throw money. You know, the scene with Royals that you already talked about earlier is literally Ramona dropping money you know a la that opening scene in the movie and it doesn't work well for them and I, and I wonder what that means for that last line right like when you try to subvert your you know your role in the world something goes wrong and so i i wonder if that's an intended statement the movie is making or if that's just by happenstance but i if we're going back to that particular last line i, I do wonder yeah, no, it's it's a thinker. Uh, I'm still thinking about some of the things that this movie leaves you with, uh, and honestly, that's a, a kind of a miracle after the first the first trailer and the vibe that I got from the first trailer uh, of this movie. Uh, the fact that there is like anything on my plate uh, to to digest whatsoever after seeing this movie uh, is kind of miraculous to me. But that's what I love about going to the movies, right? Is you never know what you're going to get, uh, and uh, sometimes the the most exciting and our favorite movies of the year are the ones that take us by surprise. And I think uh, Hustlers is a great example of that. And Ad Astra, even going back to last week, right, is not a movie that I would have thought 
would be among my favorites of the year so far. But it absolutely is. And the same goes with Hustlers. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the case with A Star is Born for me last year. I did not expect to love it as much as I did. And it ended up being my number three. So absolutely. All right, Scott, might as well go ahead and enter wrap up phase. What is your favorite scene from Hustlers? Man, I've talked about a lot of them. I mean, obviously, you got to love that last line. Um, you got to love. Uh, I, I love that shot with the money flying out of her hands. Uh, J-Lo's first scene on screen um, is a really memorable one. Uh, I guess I'll go with the short moment. We talked about l- the Lily Reinhardt and her vomiting, uh, but I think maybe the peak of this is when <laughs> the police show up at her house, break down the door, um, and as she's being hauled away, she just vomits and she's like, sorry, can't help it or something like that. Um, and it's it, it definitely made me LOL. Um, so uh, great great moment of comedy. It is, it, you know, it is a funny movie. It has some serious things to talk about, but... Uh, there are definitely some laughs too. And so I appreciated that. Certainly with Lily Reinhardt's character, there are some laughs. You know, we've talked about so many scenes. One of the scenes, and it's I think it's a miracle we haven't talked about it yet. So I'm glad we get to talk about it now. You know, we talked about it off air earlier today when we were talking about this. And that is the scene with Usher. You know, you have Usher rolling <laughs> up to the club. And I think it harkens back to that first scene that, we, that we've kind of focused more of our attention on. But you have all these dancers dancing for Usher. He's coming into the club. They have Usher's music playing in the background. I think, is it Love in This Club? Yeah. Tonight, I think that's the song that's playing in the background. <laughs> and then there's this moment, the climactic moment. It's like basically a slow-mo walk up, like Usher up to the stage. He has like giant, you know, fold of ones that he's pulled out of his pocket. And Ramona's the person dancing on the front of the stage. And she bends down and asks him what his name is. Um, and his response, Usher, baby. <laughs> Just... Great. I saw, Great I saw someone, I think maybe it was like on Twitter or on Letterboxd in the comments or something. Somebody said that like in their theater, in their theater, like during the Usher scene, like two thirds of the people in the theater, like were applauding. Like when Usher walked into the club, not even that when they says that line, but just like people were applauding the appearance of Usher, which is hysterical. I saw this last Saturday afternoon and there were like three people. Okay, more than three, but like only a handful oh, wow. of them in the theater. I wish I could have seen this with a pre- with a packed crowd. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving Hustlers? Yeah, it's it's tough because I mean, it, it, I think that to some extent this movie gave me a lot more than I was expecting. Um, and there's something to be said for the fact that uh, as this type of movie goes, this pretty much like hits the bullseye, right? In terms of what it's aiming for, it it almost hits the bullseye. Um, and so I, I give it a lot of credit for that. Maybe a few, a couple of small qualms about, um, the, you know, storytelling choices in there, uh, but ultimately really strong effort. Um, and I'm give, I'm going for the second straight week. I'm going with a 9.5. This movie is excellent. Yeah, no, I, I think that there are, I mean, we really dwell on the positive and there is so much positive about this movie, but I think there are some things that are as much as there is nuance in certain aspects of the movie with certain characters. I think there's also a lack of nuance in other parts of it, which is fine. You can't, you, I mean, you can't have it all sometimes. And But I do think that, that it, it does pop up here and there. And I think that because of that lack of nuance in some moments, some of the, um, like the intended emotional impact of some of the scenes didn't always necessarily land. You know, one of the things we didn't really talk about too much, but you mentioned briefly was the death of the grandmother. And that, I think there was just something about that scene that it just didn't quite land on me the way I felt like it should have, especially after the Christmas party scene where I felt like totally in on, you know, the, the grandma and what was going on with that character. But for something about it, it just didn't land with me. And I, and I think it was 
worth the fact that we didn't talk about those things because there's so many more positive things and interesting things to talk about with this movie. But there are a few negatives for me as well. And so I'm coming out at 9.2. All right, Scott, that will do it for our quite lengthy discussion of, of Hustler, but well, a well worthwhile discussion in my opinion. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing this past week's news and a couple trailer drops. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, you know, at first I thought this might be a light week in news, and then something something just got in the water the last couple of days, and we had a Kevin lot of stories. Feige, I say. Yeah, Kevin, well, yeah, that's true. Kevin Feige was already kind of like the landmark piece of news earlier in the week, but we'll get to that in a second. In Kevin Feige adjacent news, something that he, I imagine, is incredibly happy about, uh, Sony and Marvel have made amends, Scott. It was a big deal on the podcast probably a little bit over a month ago when Sony and Marvel split uh, and it was announced that Spider-Man would no longer be in the MCU. We weren't really sure how that was going to happen. I think the way that I described it to you is that I'm not really surprised that this has, you know, these two have, you know, fi fixed their dispute. It was all about money in the end. And that was always going to get shaped up, but uh, it was a lot of public negotiations that freaked a lot of people out. And, and I think that it worked in Sony's favor and Disney was demanding 50%, you know, a, a clean 50-50 break in the gross uh, of, of the film, a co-financing deal, and they came down off of that. And now, uh, you know, I initially, when I was initially reading, I thought that the deal might have literally stayed the same, but it's not. Instead, they're getting 25% of the gross, which I think is a big win for Sony and, and kind of is confirmation that what Disney was asking was, frankly, it was ridiculous because Sony owns the property. Yes, Kevin Feige is obviously an integral part. The MCU is an integral part of, you know, the the sh the actual sheer the last 200 300 million maybe the movie is making but you know that being said spider-man movies make money on their own they don't need the mcu to make money uh and so it felt a little bit ridiculous to me after i reflected on it that it was a 50 50 co-financing deal that they were demanding and, and now we see they've come off that so it, it, it all is right in the world tom holland's reaction all the mcu's reaction basically was pretty funny on instagram uh, and we're going to have Spider-Man back in the MCU. We're adding a, another Phase 4 movie, that third Spider-Man movie. Uh, of course, the follow-up about that explosive ending to Far From Home earlier this year. And we know he's going to be in one other uh, Marvel Studios film. We don't know which one it's going to be. I've heard some people saying that it's going to be in Phase 4, although in the original report, I don't actually remember seeing that. I know I just threw a lot at you there, Scott, but what do you think <laughs> about all this? Yeah, I mean, I just have I have the casual fan's perspective, which is just that, kind of to your point, um, I'm not really surprised ultimately that this happened, but uh, I'm very relieved that it did happen because uh, I think that uh, Far From Home uh, was a really great movie that, uh, like you said, ended in a very interesting place, a place that uh, we have not seen a Spider-Man movie go before um, with Sp Spider-Man's identity being exposed to pretty much the whole world. Um, and so it would have been a shame if we uh, had to go without knowing how that storyline uh, closes out. Um, and it, you know, it seems like we are going to get to find that out now, um, with this third movie and whatever the other Marvel studios movie that, uh, Spider-Man, uh, is going to appear in Scott. We, we were speculating a little bit that if it was going to be phase four, that maybe Dr. Strange two would be the most likely, but uh, I think I kind of agree that this, I, I can't really see this going, this happening until phase five, probably. Um, and so, 
yeah, it will be interesting to see then, you know, if Tom Holland continues beyond that. Uh, obviously, we don't know what uh, is in store for the character, but I imagine there will be more team up movies down the line, uh, you know, like the Avengers with some uh, new, new version of the Avengers. And, um, you know, I, I, I would like to think that, uh, you know, after after Avengers Endgame, they probably envisioned that Tom Holland Spider-Man would be a part of this next team up movie. Uh, I don't know if this changes that at all, uh, but it will be interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because, you know, because this deal only talks about, you know, this next movie, uh, this next Spider-Man dedicated movie, and then one other MCU film, uh, you know, a lot of people are really latching onto that as if it means like after that, Spider-Man's done in the MCU. Yeah. I think, that, I don't know if I necessarily read that that way. I think it's, you know, two companies negotiating a deal and just trying to understand that they will reevaluate after the next few years and, I'm a little bit less concerned that Spider-Man's role in the MCU kind of phased out, so to speak. Uh, and I'd be curious, you know, a couple years from now, when you know they're essentially probably renegotiating this deal again to keep Spider-Man in the MCU. I, I wonder what that will mean. I mean, obviously, this week we also got some other announcements related to the, you know, the extended Spider-Man universe that Sony is trying to create. We got a Madam Web announcement, as well as, you know, I was looking at a, a list that that fandom put out of all the currently in in production or pre-production or rumored projects in the, the Spider-Man film universe. I forget everything about in doing in the TV space with Lord and Miller, but just in the films, it was like a, like a laundry list a mile long of films. Black Cat out. was in there. Yeah. It's just crazy. The number of projects that are going on over there. And, you know, to your point and maybe to Kevin Feige's point as well, who kind of alluded to this in one of his quotes that, you know, Spider-Man, Tom Holland, Spider-Man specifically has the ability to cross cinematic universes. And so it seems like Sony has plenty of plans to to deal with Spider-Man and I'm sure they want to put him in Venom too, you know, if and when and then that, that project's definitely happening. We'll see if, yeah. if Tom Holland ends up making a cameo or has a role in that movie. But, you know, Spider-Man is in, in Tom Holland, Spider-Man specifically has this unique ability right now to, to cross multiple cinematic universes. And I think that, you know, Marvel, of course, and Disney would be crazy not to want him as a part of the universe. And they certainly seem like they want to be him to be a part of their universe. Exactly to your point, setting him up to kind of be taking over from, from Tony Stark, being taken over from Iron Man. Um, to your point about what phase four movie it could be, I can't really think of any other movie except Doctor Strange 2 that it would be because I don't think any of the other movies are are sequels to existing, I guess Guardians 3, but it seems so unlikely yeah, that yeah. and Thor, you know, Love and Thunder. But those are cosmic movies. They seem I mean Doctor Strange 2 is also a cosmic movie, to be fair. But they but, have a past relationship, these two characters yeah. have been hanging out together in the last exactly. couple of adventures movies. So yeah, you know, and Infinity War, you know, take, taking the trip to Titan. Uh, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that is the one possibility, right? Unless, it, in terms of just pure, you know, I guess terminology, right? Unless what comes after 2021 is also considered Phase 4. So then you'd have the Black Panther sequel, yeah. the Captain Marvel sequel, Blade. He probably won't be in Blade. but uh, <laughs> yeah, Spider-Man fighting, fighting vampires would be pretty cool, though. Yeah, I mean... Badass, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man taking down vampires. But all that's to say that I think that a lot of things are still in question and, and we can kind of just rest a little bit easier now that we know that Spider-Man will not be disappearing. We'll get to see this trilogy, if that is what it ends up being in the MCU, uh, completed. Although Sony already had plans for a third and a fourth Spider-Man, Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. So I don't think that the relationship between Sony and Marvel with Spider-Man is going to end after these two films that, that people are talking about. But some people do think that. 
Uh, and that would be a shame if we did have to wrap things up there in the next couple of movies. Yeah. Ultimately, last thing I'll say is I think the best thing we get out of this, Scott, more Zendaya. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Although I imagine they probably would be able to drag her over. They're obviously like happy wouldn't be able to get dragged over probably to, to Sony's world. But I think yeah. we probably would still be getting Zendaya either way. Yeah, maybe. I don't know how the contracts work out. I'm not but that kind of guy. But it's confirmed now, yeah. Yeah, now we can we can sleep easy. You know, we can still have Ned and Betty. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> Zendaya. Absolutely. All right. So, you know, you talked about Kevin Feige uh, alluding to that earlier. And so we might as well stick with him. And that is the fact that this week, uh, Kevin, I, this is, I'm just going to read off my notes here because I thought this joke was funny. But I put Kevin Feige and then in Struck Through takes over the world and is actually just expanding his creative role at Disney. Uh, beyond Marvel, we found out this week that he's going to be producing uh, at least one Star Wars movie. Uh, rumor rumors are already flying about who you know who he's trying to tap for key roles in that movie. Brie Larson is one of the people that's uh, uh, rumored because she's tweeted a lot about Star Wars before, and in fact, even after this announcement was made, I think she tweeted a picture of herself kind of in a in a Ray cosplay, uh, which I thought was uh, in- interesting, so to speak, and maybe just feeding into the rumors. But you know, Kevin Feige doing one movie really interesting, maybe not surprising to see him you know spreading his wings at Disney, and and, it, and it's definitely been. I guess uh, garnering a lot of questions about, you know, what is Kathleen Kennedy's role long term in the Star Wars franchise, especially as we expand beyond the Skywalker saga, you know, before, you know, she's been an EP on every movie, uh, I think, since the prequel trilogy, I'm not sure, but she's been a a big deal over at, at Lucasfilms, you know, since you know, in, in the last two decades. And as, you know, the amount of content they're producing between Disney Plus and the films uh, is expanding, you might see people like Kevin Feige, people like John Favreau, other other executive producers on these projects who have really interesting visions and have proven their worth and other parts of Disney taking on key roles uh, in the universe. And now, does Kevin Feige have the time to take over, you know, a huge chunk of Star Wars production beyond one movie? I don't know, but he's really into Star Wars, just like he's really into Marvel. And I think we're all going to benefit from having a Kevin Feige produced Star Wars movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, are we thinking, I mean, we're probably, we're thinking this is most likely one of the Benioff and Weiss movies, right? That's not the impression that I, I mean, it could very well end up being, but I assume every time one of these announcements happens that it's something new. I'd be really surprised. I'd be particularly surprised if it was Benioff and Weiss because they have such a clear vision for what their movies want to be. I don't, I mean, like, yes, you could benefit from having Kevin Feige, but why not just give Kevin Feige his own, his own movie, right? Because Benioff and Weiss. So now I mean, we have two have, trilogies out, the two different trilogies out there and this other Kevin Feige movie. Well, the, I think, well, I mean, one, that's not that surprising really, is it? I mean, but like also, no, is RJ really going to get a trilogy? I don't think RJ is going to actually get a trilogy. I mean, he has a trilogy in mind. We know that. but Sure, but I don't think Star Wars is going to produce a trilogy. Yeah, not I mean, at, I could not be wrong. at this particular time, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, but like, is that is it really surprising though that there's, two trilogies, a Kevin Feige produced movie, probably other projects we don't even know about out there. I mean, especially especially when you're trying to fill up Disney Plus. I mean, the rumor is, right, I think one of the rumors is that RJ's series is just is a Disney Plus series. It's like basically a direct Disney Plus movie. Yeah. I, I just I just wonder if there is any risk of people getting oversaturated with Star Wars stuff because... Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. We saw it happen a year, a year and a half ago. exactly what I was going to say, is that Solo was a huge flop, and it led, that, led to them... Um, canceling all of the standalone movies so that is one which are all being revived in disney plus series form to be fair but But, 
um, we still did see a little bit of a waning interest there because, of course, Solo came out really pretty soon after The Last Jedi, um, like er- early uh, 2018. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was five months, so it was December mm-hmm. to May. So I, I think that is a risk. That's the only reason I bring up the fact that we have all of these different uh, projects that are out there. Uh, and that's not even mentioning all of the Disney Plus stuff, of course. But yes, yeah. I think that having Kevin Feige in Star Wars is only going to help things. He's proven uh, what he can do uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I, I will be interested to see whether he, you know, this is just a one-off or whether he has some sort of long-term vision for Star Wars because, Scott, I think one thing I'm finding in re-watching the Star Wars movies as we are for our Star Wars series is that one of the things that the original trilogy does really well is they are kind of like Avengers light movies in a way you have like this central crew of heroes um, that you're following the whole time with Han, Leia, Chewbacca, the droids, Luke Skywalker, like they are kind of their own little Avengers. Um, And that's distinct, I think from the prequels, which we watched first um, where you didn't have that. So it was, it was more uh, pieces than it was like, Oh, you have this whole team that you're rooting for the whole time. Uh, And I think that they are, kind of getting back to that to an extent in the sequel trilogy to to pretty good effect. But I'd be interested to see if um, Kevin Feige tries to, you know, transplant what he has done with Marvel over to Star Wars um, kind of in a kind of in a way maybe that we saw in like Rogue One, I think was a, a good example of a movie where you had kind of these this kind of a Star Wars team up movie. Um, it would be interesting to see, but, uh, you know, I, I, I sound like a broken record on this. I just want a good movie when it comes to star Wars. Uh, and Kevin Feige has shown that he could produce more than a few good movies. So I'm excited. Yeah. I was also going to say, I think you might just gonna be conflating the prequel trilogy and, and then the original trilogy is just like one of those trilogies had good movies in it and the other didn't. <laughs> and like, I, yes. the, the, but this the is the one original... reason why they are good movies or why they are better. Sure. 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 I, 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 yes, I'm not sure chicken or egg, how that, how that plays out there, but I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And then Kevin Feige, you know, I think that right now it's one of those things where like, you know, we're going to give you a star Wars movie and if it goes well, we'll probably give you a whole wing of star Wars to play with. Uh, if not, you know, move him into an executive producer role over the whole studio. It, it wouldn't surprise me if 10 years from now, Kevin Feige kind of owns Disney or Mar- owns Marvel and star Wars. Owns Disney. But also yeah. owns Disney. Move yeah. over, Alan Horn. Yeah. I mean, it's not even... You mean Bob Iger? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Iger's retiring in 2021, but he was also retiring three years ago and this year. So who knows if that guy will ever retire. So Yeah. Who knows? I guess... It, I mean, Alan Horn's head of all of Walt Disney Studios. So right, yeah. yeah. We'll see. I mean, honestly, though, I don't know what Kevin... If he has any long-term aspirations beyond what he's already accomplished in his life. But, How could uh, you, honestly? President of the United yeah, States, maybe? Yeah. All right, Scott, moving on, going to run through some casting news here. And, you know, why not stay in the comic book movie universe with Matt Reeves' Batman movie? You know, this is what I thought was going to be the big news story at the end of the week, and then other shit happened. So what we found out this week is that uh, we, we know for sure that, you know, at one point rumored to be, I believe, Jamie Foxx uh, in this role. But what we found out this week is that Jeffrey Wright is going to be playing the role of Jim Gordon. That doesn't mean, you know... Uh, Jamie Foxx will also still be in this movie. There are plenty of other roles that I'm sure he could take on, but Jeffrey Wright will be playing the role of Detective Jim Gordon. Uh, We also found out kind of on the same day that Jonah Hill is in talks for a villain's role in the movie, strongly rumored to be the Riddler, could also be the Penguin, could be another villain entirely. Scott, what do you think of these two uh, casting notes? Do you think they're good fits for their roles? 
who else might you want to see in this movie? What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think these are both solid choices. Um, Jeffrey Wright is someone that I'm not always a fan of, but I definitely think I'm more positive on this news, uh, given that we just saw him in The Goldfinch, and I thought he was the standout in the cast in that movie, uh, as um, you'll be aware if you listen to our Goldfinch episode. Um, so I'm definitely positive on this news coming out of, uh, you know, writing, writing that buzz from The Goldfinch. Uh, I think he'll be a solid Jim Gordon. Uh, as for Jonah Hill, you know, we did initially think that this he was probably going to be Penguin, um, but I could totally see him as the Riddler as well. Um, I think uh, obviously he has some comic chops, and I think uh, that if you're going to play the Riddler, you have to be able to pull that off. I mean, we've seen the only real screen portrayal we've seen of the Riddler was Jim Carrey, obviously someone who's mainly known for doing uh, comedic roles. Uh, but I think that Jonah Hill maybe even has uh, more experience with the dramatic side as well um, than Jim Carrey has. I mean, he's done dramatic movies, Internal Sunshine and um, Man in the Moon and stuff like that. But um, Wall Street. yes, uh, I think we've seen Jonah Hill uh, blending the two together uh, in an effective way in recent years. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street being an example of that for sure. Um, so, yeah, I think this this is going to be a. Uh, an interesting role for Jonah Hill, but uh, I, I I definitely don't uh, foresee huge problems with uh, this casting. Uh, I guess it just remains to be seen which villain he will be, but as Riddler or Penguin, I don't know if that you can really go wrong there. Yeah. One of the points that Jeff Snyder was making over at Collider, who is one of the people who was, he didn't drop the news. I don't think, I don't think it was exclusive, but he was saying that it would be just like too on the nose probably, uh, and probably not a good decision for him to play the penguin because Danny DeVito's penguin is so iconic. Now, yes, Jim Carrey, you know, being a comic turning into a dramatic role, playing the Riddler is definitely a similar mold. And my, and according to Jeff, um, according to Jeff, Jonah Hill really looks up to Jim Carrey as someone to model his career off of in terms of how he shifted from comedic roles to dramatic roles. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that, have, that he has going for him for that Riddler role is that, you know, People don't like when you, you think of iconic Batman villains, the Riddle, Jim Carrey's the Riddler is not one of them. And so yeah. I think Jonah has a lot more flexibility to make that role his own than he would with, you know, the instant comparisons of the penguin of Danny DeVito's penguin. So I think it probably would fit better for him to to be uh, to be the Riddler. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, can't say that I came up with myself. So I'll credit to, to Jeff there. <laughs> Give it to Snidey. <laughs> Give it to Snidey. Uh, yeah. All right. So moving on from that, we you know we had the Emmys last weekend. In fact, while we were recording last weekend, the Emmys were playing, and Jodie Comer took home a statue, uh, much to her surprise, because she told her family to stay home for it, and because uh, she really didn't think there was any way she'd be winning lead actress in a in a dramatic role or in a in a drama series. Uh, but she won it, and with that came some casting news this past week. We'll start with the positive, and we'll probably talk more about the negative, in my opinion. But the positive, I think, is that she's going to be in a in an untitled film uh, directed by Taika Waititi and opposite Ryan Reynolds. That sounds like it's going to be an action movie because apparently she's going to be descending from like a thirty foot cable or something about that. Is that the story piece was about? Which sounds awesome. Bad news is apparently she's going to be uh, the the lead female role in the Last Duel, which is Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Uh, film about uh, two best friends while one of them is away at war the other one uh, rapes the friend's wife and that just seems like one we've talked I mean one we've already talked about it before and we both talked about how we had extreme reservations about whether this film is necessary and two I just honestly couldn't be more disappointed that Jodie Comer would be playing that role 
Yeah, again, I reserve judgment until at least until I see a trailer uh, for this movie, uh, just because, yeah, to your point, like, I think I would be surprised to see uh, someone of her caliber that is on the rise, a rising star like her, uh, risk some of that by taking on a project that, um, you know, trivializes rape or something like that. So, you know, I want to see more still, like, I'm definitely concerned about it, uh, but I, I don't want to cancel anyone yet until I've seen the um, trailers or anything, uh, especially because Nicole Hall Center is still involved. Like I still I still cling to that as a, one thing giving me hope is that um, she's going to be writing this movie. So we will see uh, on that. But I mean, yeah, uh, it, it's it's still a very interesting story. As for the other news, I think that's great. Um, I you know she's obviously shown she has the chops to do action in Killing Eve, which of course she was won the Emmy for. Um, and I, I haven't caught up on season two yet of Killing Eve, but I uh, really enjoyed her in season one. Um, and yeah, she's I even think, better uh, in season two. Great. She's definitely a star on the rise. And uh, I could definitely see that just from season one alone. Um, so I'm glad to see her branching out into the film world as well. So um, I can uh, be exposed to her more because I just don't know um, when I'm going to get around to watch all of the shows I need to watch, including season two of Killing Eve. Yeah, I think you know you make a good point. You got to at some point you got to reserve judgment until you understand what the movie is about. And Nicole Holof Center is definitely the the ray of the ray of the ray of light to cling on to and keep your keep your vision focused on if you're trying to be optimistic about the movie. I just I don't understand why someone in her situation would would be interested by in taking that role. Like I don't know, it feels like the wrong move from a from I mean, a career. We still don't know. We still don't know what the role even is, other than sure, that, yeah. Great- that she is the, the, the wife gets raped, but um, yeah, maybe I mean, the role has to be bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, like there has to be something else about it. And that's the one thing, especially with Hall. Of, I, mean, I imagine with Hall of center, right. There's gotta be something about that character. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. We will. All right, Scott, Will Smith, you know, lots of mixed reviews, negative reviews. We're not sure. Uh, we'll see. We'll see in a couple weeks or next week when Gemini man, comes out, but we did learn this week that uh, his next film after Gemini Man is going to be a little bit different. He's going to be playing a crime boss in a movie called The Council for Netflix. Scott, what do you think of this role? Is it fit in the Smithisance as you coined it, I believe, in our in our chat earlier this week, or is this a weird one for you? No, it sounds a little bit interesting. Maybe more of a villain role. Not sure from just the description of crime boss alone, but potentially a villain role, which um, is something we're not used to seeing Will Smith do do at all. So uh, that's the big thing for me with Will Smith is uh, in recent years, I felt like he hasn't challenged himself very much with the roles. And that's why uh, I people have kind of grown a little bit bored and tired of uh, his films. Um, and But this year, it does seem like he's doing uh, some interesting stuff. I still have, I mean, obviously he was great in Aladdin, um, and I, I still have hope for Gemini Man. You know, I've been seeing this trailer since, seems like since January, practically. Um, and uh, it, it looks like there's a little more to it than your average Will Smith role. Obviously, he's, he has kind of a dual role in the movie, um, as we can see from the trailers. Um, and so we will see whether the smith is in full force after we review Gemini Man. But um, yeah, I, I, I look at this as promising for sure. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on with your point about this is a different role than we've necessarily seen from Will Smith because I think an actor who is, I hesitate to say has been typecast because I think he's played different roles, but all the roles feel very samey 
in some sense. And so it, it's good to see him branching out, doing something a little bit different. Y- you know, we'll see with Gemini Man, absolutely reserving judgment myself, but uh, there are only there are only a few reviews published right now. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 intrigued by this simply because I don't think he's played a crime boss before, and he doesn't play too many villains. I can't think of any off the top of my head immediately. But if he is end up being an antagonist, a villain, so to speak, uh, I think that could be something that he could really sink his teeth into and, and you know, get a little bit more buzz about him, even if Gemini Man does isn't as successful as he would have hoped. Absolutely. All right, Scott, last bit of ca- casting news here. This week at a, you know, talking about Collider again, it's almost like we watch their stuff. Um, <laughs> at a Collider screening uh, for Jurassic World, where they also showed the short dra- uh, Battle at Little Big Rock, or Battle at Big Rock. Battle at Big Rock, yeah. yeah. The, to the people at the screening that herself, Sam Neill, and Jeff Goldblum will all be returning for Jurassic World 3, of course, being directed by probably the hottest director in Hollywood, Colin Trevorrow. Um, Scott, does this get you more excited uh, about the Jurassic World series, considering you're, you're, in, you're in the basement right now on your excitement for Jurassic World 3? Uh, whoop-de-doo. That's my reaction to this, I think. Um, you do like the original movie, though. Sure, yeah. yeah. But I just think that this franchise has far from worn out its welcome. I don't know that Sam Neill and Laura Derns, or even Jeff Goldblum to an extent, their presences were what I loved so much about the first movie. And it does seem like, it does sound like that Trevorrow was going to be using them uh, a lot more in this movie than Jeff Goldblum was used, for example, in Fallen Kingdom, which was basically just kind of a cameo role. Uh, well, I heard all of his scenes got cut by the editor. Oh, well, regardless, I think uh, it does seem like that they're going to be restored to sort of main characters in this one. Um, but I just, don't, characters. I just don't care about the story at this point. Um, Watch no- Laura Dern be Bryce Dallas Howard's mom. The novelty of, of seeing the dinosaurs has long worn off. Um, and yeah, uh, unfortunately I'm not sure that there's much they could get me, much they could do that would get me on board at this point. And, unless they somehow got like Richard Linklater to direct a movie over 2000 years or something going back to the Mesozoic era. I think you'd have to go back further than 2000 years to go in the Mesozoic era. Yeah. I was, I was aiming low just because, uh, yeah, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's good. it's 2019, right? There have been 2,000 years, but um, that's probably the only way they could get me on board at this point. I wonder if Linklater would direct a Jurassic Park. I wonder if he likes Jurassic Park. Surely not, right? You think I he mean, likes yeah. Jurassic Park? I think that he would do it if you asked him to. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, one of the interesting takes I heard about this is that they're bringing all these characters back to like kill this wing of the franchise and then whatever they do i mean it's gonna hang around there's gonna be another jurassic movie but that they're really gonna close the loop on you know this you know this trilogy the original jurassic park trilogy and then what what you're left with is a clean slate for whatever they do next which will hopefully be more compelling uh than the jurassic world trilogy dinosaurs in space that'd be pretty that'd be pretty cool honestly (laughs) would watch where every other franchise is going nowadays so why not (laughs) Uh, yeah, mission. Oh, you making a joke about Mission Impossible going to space? Is that uh, yeah, well, and I mean, and Avengers to some extent, but yeah, yeah. I mean, they were in space from almost the start, but yeah, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. All right, Scott, moving away from casting news and talking about an Uncharted film, my and say, and an Uncharted film. I mean, the Uncharted film with Tom Holland, Dan. Tra- you know, I think we talked about it on the podcast Dan Trachtenberg exiting, exiting the 
the movie a while back. I can't remember. It's all it all blurs together. Uh, but we did hear this week that Travis Knight has been tapped to replace him as director for this movie, Scott. And honestly, I couldn't be more positive about this. I think that this makes a lot of sense. I think it's perfect. Him coming off Bumblebee, going to this film, you're going to get a little bit more action, but still, clearly with his experience at Leica, it's going to be a really grounded story, which I think is going to be really important to, to you know to get your hook get you know get those hooks in into all the viewers not just the people who are familiar with the uncharted franchise uh and so i think this direction uh for for the director role makes a lot of sense and all of a sudden i'm like super optimistic this film's actually gonna get made yeah i mean it's there's still the hesitancy because they have gone through a lot of directors at this point but uh with Travis Knight being the rising name that he is. I'll admit I haven't seen any of his movies, uh, but I know how well regarded he is. I know enough to know that this is uh, a strong choice and an encouraging choice for this movie. Um, I'd be surprised if he, uh, if he doesn't try his darndest to get this thing made. Um, And yeah, with, with Tom Holland back in Spider-Man, people are going to be back on the Tom Holland trained, uh, Tom Holland trained hard. So they um, never left it though. Yeah, they, they didn't. But, um, you know, a couple of years without his Spider-Man might have caused people to, um, you know, lose some interest for Tom Holland. But um, now I don't think there's any risk of that. Um, and although I still have some reservations about him playing the lead role of Nathan Drake, um, I still think that um, this is the kind of movie that I really want to like. Uh, and this is giving me another reason why I think uh, I may end up liking it. So. Yeah, you know, Scott, I don't make this often, but I'd be willing to bet we see this movie by 2022. Wow. Hope we're alive by then. Do you know something I don't? <laughs> yeah, I downloaded the <laughs> Countdown app, actually. Oh, shit. <laughs> Get that away from me. Uh, all of our listeners are gone after that joke. All right, so one of the other news this week, Scott, is that, you know, I think we talked about on the podcast some casting news for this movie, and that is Clint Eastwood's next movie. It's called Richard Jewell, starring uh, based the on a true story. The Ballad of Richard Jewell, I believe. The Ballad of Richard Jewell. That's a good point. Yeah, thank you for correcting me there. Le- the lead role done is going to be Paul Walter Hauser playing, uh, playing that lead role, directed by Clint Eastwood, supporting role of Sam Rockwell, and a few others, I believe. It has a really great cast. And all of a sudden, this thing is releasing in like two months out of nowhere. It's getting a, a mid-December release to qualify it for awards season. And Scott, when we talked about the casting news for this earlier this year, I thought that this thing was a 2020 release for sure. Yeah, I mean, give Clint Eastwood some credit, right? Like this guy is 108 years old and he cranks out a movie every single year, right? Like More than one had, usually. Yeah, it's crazy. Like he had two last year. That's, that's yeah. a good point. I mean, one of them was the 1517 to Paris, which I don't think you – most people would call a movie, but uh, it was still released. Um, Clint Eastwood would have preferred people to have forgotten that he made that movie. Yes. Uh, but The Mule was actually pretty good. Um, was yeah. one of the more surprisingly good movies of last year. Uh, and this one is one that I have uh, definitely higher expectations for, right? Because you said, you mentioned the cast, and this is a story that I've been familiar with for a long time. This is about the security guard who was falsely accused of, of uh, being involved with the bombings at the 98 uh, uh, Atlanta Olympics. Um, like Paul Walter Hauser was the person who I had uh, tapped from the beginning when I heard that they were making this movie to play Richard Joel. And then the fact that he actually did end up getting cast was really exciting to me. So um, I hope this doesn't turn out to be sort of a boilerplate, um, you know, Oscar Beatty biopic, um, which I think maybe there's a, a bit of a tendency that it could be uh, with Eastwood directing. Uh, but 
uh, I'm encouraged enough by uh, the overall, um, you know, the cast and uh, the story and everything to where uh, I I hope that this movie is good. And I, I do have some faith that it's going to be good. Like I said, The Mule was surprisingly good and not uh, not as uh, fastball down the middle as you might expect from Clint Eastwood. So. Yeah, so the rest of the cast includes Kathy Bates, Olivia Wilde, and John Hamm uh, in supporting roles along with Sam Rockwell. But actually, I'm going to go back and correct you because the movie has been renamed to simply Richard Jewell, not The Ballad of Richard Jewell. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Bobby. All good, all good, because it definitely was called The Ballad of Richard Jewell at one point. No, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I, it worries me a little bit that Warner Brothers is just kind of looking at their schedule and like, shit, we don't have anything to put in for Oscar consideration besides Joker. I mean, I'm sure they're going to push really hard for Joker, obviously, but... Um, they just maybe they just look at their calendar like maybe can we fit this in? Can you get this edited in time? Uh, so ho- hopefully we're getting the true finished product uh, in December and not something that was you know quickly cut together and you know maybe not a best maybe not the best effort that Clint Eastwood could put in. Yeah. All right, Scott. Last kind of big piece of news before we we do move on. I think or I should say I guess we got two more before we move on to trailers. But last big piece of news. So to speak, and that is the news that Apple T, you know, Apple is going to be reduce, re, eh, releasing their exclusive movies that otherwise would be going to Apple TV Plus in theaters first. So they're kind of taking a little bit of an Amazon approach, less the Netflix approach. They're they're going to give that exclusive window to get them into theaters, to get them into awards consideration. And some of the movies that were announced for that were Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, and then a couple other movies as well that we haven't talked about on the podcast. But you know, upon initial you know, release of this news, I was thinking, this is a strange play. Like, I don't really understand why. So, so yes, yeah, Sofia Coppola, kind of a prestige indie director, does really well in the festival circuit, but doesn't really make waves around awards season. And yes, her movies probably turn a profit, but, you know, they're not making hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. And that was my initial take. And then I thought a little bit more about it and thought about some news that we covered. I don't actually know, maybe we didn't actually talk about it on the podcast, but J.J. Abrams turned down a huge deal at Apple to go with, I think it was Warner Brothers, but it also could have one of the other big studios that's not Apple or Netflix. And the reason that was cited was one of the reasons that was speculated is that that was because he wouldn't be getting wide theatrical releases with this movie. So I wonder if this ends up being a play to try to attract those prestige directors like, hey, come to us. We will release your, your movie in theaters. And I wonder if that's the play more than, you know, just trying to make a buck off of some of these movies. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I definitely don't think Sofia Coppola is someone who's going to rake in the dough. But at the same time, uh, you know, her movies tend to be profitable. Uh, we looked at that this week, Scott. And uh, also, I think is she is she is uh, is this going to be an A twenty four joint? I think it is, right? On the rocks. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't I'm, actually. Look I'm at that. pretty sure I saw that, and it would make sense. She has worked with A twenty four a couple times before. Um, I really, uh, I doubt it though, because they're. I mean, A twenty four is a distributor. Like, I don't know why they would be. A24 and Apple. I'll look it up. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, anyway, if A24 is involved with this, I think that's, you know, a a sneaky good thing, obviously, because they're crushing it right now. And they're starting to become a name that people, not just, you know, film bros recognize. Like I have uh, friends who aren't even into movies and they know who A24 is and they're like, hey, they 20, this A24 people actually put out some really good movies. Um, So I think if, if this is a, an A24 joint, um, then that could also be a factor which may lead to it having a, a sneakily good uh, theatrical run, uh, you know, when Apple puts this out. It is A24. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think um, 
it is an interesting play, especially with A24. It makes a lot of sense. But I think it's going to be their approach beyond just this movie. Uh, and I can't imagine they're going to be pr- like dis- distributing, a- become a distributor of A24 yeah. movies. It'd be interesting. Yeah, that would be interesting, though. They'd get you as a subscriber. But yeah, they definitely would. You want to get me on board streaming services? I know you're all listening right now. Pair up with A24. It's not the worst advice. Yeah. Okay. Sign, sign a five picture deal with uh, Ari Aster. <laughs> yeah. You know, God, honestly, imagine a Ari Aster cinematic universe. <laughs> yeah. Some more hereditary move on. All right. With that, on that note, let's move on to our discussion topic for the week. And that, you know, there's all this conversation over the past week about Joker and, you know, what is Warner brothers place in the conversation? Should they be releasing a movie that endorses violence uh, in, in this particular way, is it you know is it is it smart of them? You know, I think one of the key people or one of the key groups pushing for this on social media uh, is this group of people from Aurora, Colorado, which is of course where the shooting happened uh, around the Dark Knight Rises with the person who dressed up in a Joker costume. And these people have been saying, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Stop endorsing candidates who don't who don't push for gun legislation. You know, gun legislation. Stop. You know, donate to to more you know gun gun violence causes, things like that. And uh, it's really sparked an interesting conversation. Uh, Todd Phillips actually responded. I was looking at today and talked about how it, he doesn't understand why people are targeting a movie like The Joker when you have a movie like John Wick where someone murders about five hundred people over the course of the film, but there's no outrage about that. And I think he has a point and I'm definitely in Todd Phillips camp here. Uh, I thought it was ridiculous that it got to the point where Warner brothers had to release a statement saying that the movie uh, was fictional and not in and, like it did not endorse violence and Warner brothers did not condone violence. I just thought it was ridiculous that a movie studio had to do that uh, this week. Not that they shouldn't be supporting causes that I, I personally agree with like gun legislation, uh, gun violence, things like that. that I agree supporting that's a positive thing, but I thought it, it's been such an interesting week full of a conversation that I was just a little bit surprised that we got to the point about. And I just was wondering what you thought about this as well. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'll admit I am a little concerned about this movie. Um, yeah, I am too, but not for that reason. I'm, I'm concerned for a different reason than that one. So, so what, what, why are you concerned then? I mean, just well, to make I'm more concerned that it's perpetuating certain like mainstream stereotypes around like people who are mentally ill become deranged and murder people. Yeah, that's the one that I'm worried about. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. I think as far as the Todd Phillips comments go, I definitely sympathize with what he's saying. I also see somewhat the counter argument that the John Wick movies clearly take place in a alternate world like uh, a a sort of world that bears no similarities whatsoever to the one that we live in with these assassin hotels and um, the elder and all of this sort of mystical kind of stuff that's going on. Um, Whereas Joker is kind of hyper realistic, or at least it appears it's going to be, it's going to be um, kind of a satire of the world that we live in. Uh, And there is, I guess, more of a threat of people uh, actually identifying with this character and and you know you, you you do take into account the fact that the most uh notable movie theater shooting in america involved like you said james holmes who dressed up as the joker um so i i understand the the concerns about this for sure yeah i i, I don't i don't know how much else i have to add like i i 
Yeah, I understand. No, I, I understand the concerns for sure, yeah, for but sure. Like, I don't understand how that's on Warner Brothers. Like yeah. people people produce art all the time that is provocative. That doesn't mean that a that like I don't think that that means that especially with a movie that oh like a, a production company or a distributor is then like somehow responsible for the way each individual person who goes and watches the film responds to the art that they've created. I think that that like at some point you like accountability is lost in there. I think, and I I don't think that. Yeah someone is responsible like that that being said like yes i understand like the world that you're seeing in the trailers maybe feels more real than what you're getting in john wick but it's a comic book movie i do not think that a normal rational person will associate this world with batman superman wonder woman the flash aquaman is the world yeah. like is well, the i don't think we're we concerned about the normal rational people here though but but when you start talking about people who aren't normal or rational, I don't know how then you say that it's clear that John Wick is in a less real world than than the Joker. Is my is more my thought. I mean, I think it's just the different elements of the world. I'm not sure. saying that I necessarily agree with that. I I understand that is a counter argument, and I understand yeah. the counter argument. Um, sure. But yes, I agree with you. Like that, this isn't on the studio. This isn't on Warner Brothers. Not to get too deep into the legal side of it, but like, oh um, so we have you on for you're the specialist. Yeah, for this. yeah that's true. But uh, this this kind of thing is not something that would get sustained in a court of law, right? Like, you can't only in very specific, very rare circumstances can you like actually argue that some sort of media, uh, you know, some sort of film or novel or something is actual incitement and like you know, is worthy of censorship or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, this isn't um, propaganda. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And, um, you know, like, like you said, our art is meant to be provocative. Art is meant to critique society. Uh, and I think that that's what they're going for with the Joker. Um, and if, you know, things go south, uh, as I think there is, a, a, you know, unfortunately a possibility, unfortunately this is the world we live in where we have to be concerned about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that that's Warner Brothers' responsibility to like not release the film or something. Sure, you know, to to draw maybe a, an example that feels maybe a little bit less close to home, but I think is and not insignificant either. It'd be like saying that Walt Disney uh, Studios is at fault if like someone dresses up in like a Hitler costume when they go see Jojo Rabbit and, and like shoot and 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 shoots up a movie theater. Like yeah. I don't think that would be Walt Disney's fault. I don't think that's a normal rational response to think. I don't think that Walt Disney needs to come out and say they don't condone Nazi or like they condone they don't condone Nazi like fascism or not or Nazism. Like that that would just be absurd if they if like someone like demanded that and they needed to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It and like I said, wouldn't fly in a court of law. So all right. Well, on that note, we can fly from the court of law to the court of recently released trailers, which is not a thing. Definitely something I just made up to segue out of that. So crush that one. All right. Scott, this week, uh, we, we got a brand new trailer for The Irishman. It also had its uh, debut at the New York Film Festival. Seems like it's getting some pretty good hype coming out of there. Scott, what did you think of this new trailer? Yeah, no, we got to see a little more of our, our stars there, uh, a little more of uh, De Niro and Joe Pesci and and Pacino all um, got got a little bit more screen time than we saw uh, in the first uh, trailer. We also there was a lot of critiques going around about the how the de aging looked in this particular trailer. I'm I so think tired it, of people yeah, talking about the de aging. It's, it's old hat to me. Like people like were freeze framing certain shots from the trailer and being like, look at how bad this looks. But like these shots were going by in like one or two seconds in the trailer. Like 
I did, would not have even noticed like that the de-aging maybe looked a little wonky um, unless somebody stopped and was like looking for a reason to like be mad about it. So I don't see that as that big of an issue. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this movie. It looks like classic Scorsese. Um, it looks like it's going to have a fair amount of humor in it, which is, is fun. Um, and, and that's something that the early reviews have reflected as well. Uh, and yeah, it's just such a relief to see this getting, uh, uh, great reviews as it did at coming out of New York Film Festival. So um, we never should have doubted Scorsese. And uh, it sounds like he has another banger on his hands. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm really enjoying seeing from the reviews that the, the brief reviews that I've read so far is the fact that it really does kind of lean in and explore the idea of aging and legacy and what that means. And I'm sure something that feels very authentic to, to Scorsese, who's someone who's, you know, been a director in Hollywood for 40 plus years now and has, seen himself age and thought about his legacy. And I think that it's going to be, you know, a, a new theme for a, a genre that he's explored every decade of his career. And so I think that it, it's definitely going to be uh, an interesting one. Now this trailer is good. I'm sick and tired of people talking about the de-aging on Twitter. I think it's just dumb. I, I definitely hear what people are saying. And I think the thing that matters to me is that when you see someone who has been de-aged 40, 50 years, whatever it is, and, the, between the oldest and the youngest portions of the movie. The thing that looks weird to me is maybe not the CG, but if they are acting like they are 80 years old and they're supposed to be at their right, like, yeah. that's that's when it, it becomes a problem for me. People are like freeze frame and stuff you're talking about. Like, I'm just like, dude, like it's not meant to be f like freeze frame and look yeah. at it's it's see like if you freeze frame you can pull a freeze frame of an of a, of a real person and it looks bad. Guess what? The Empire Strikes Back doesn't look that great anymore either. It doesn't. Tune into our Star Wars podcast. Uh, yeah, no, it's. I'm just so sick and tired of people talking about DH. And this movie looks good. The reviews are good so far, and I'm ready for it. Yeah. All right, Scott. Last trailer of the day, and we can get out of here. Uncut Gems. Uh, your favorite actor in Hollywood, in spite of the fact that you've never talked about it on the podcast, Adam Sandler, taking on a more dramatic role. Uh, in this form. And I was looking at IndieWire's survey from TIFF, and this was the third highest rated performance by film critics, on, uh, according to the IndieWire survey, uh, which is not just of IndieWire people. Um, higher than Jennifer Lopez's performance, uh, in, in, in fact, which really raised some eyebrows. And I think I got a little bit of a flavor of that from Uncut Gems. I don't know if I was as sold as other people were, though, by the trailer, and I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to think after this trailer. This movie looks absolutely wild. Um, Nuts. Yeah, Sandler looks really off the chain in this. Um, you have like a random supporting cast of Adina Menzel, The Weeknd, Kevin Garnett, um, just casually. And of course, this is from this is the new movie from the Safdie brothers who directed Good Time, uh, which of course was the big hit for A24 with Robert Pattinson. Um, and and so, it's also distributed by A24. Yes. Um, Uncut Gems is right. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know what to think of this. I'm glad to hear that it's getting good buzz. I mean, I'm not, I, I want I want every movie to be good, right? Yeah, as even Sandler's even, getting uh, buzz for an Oscar. I mean, it's crazy. And as, as much as I may have distaste for Adam Sandler, like, I want every movie to be good, right? I want this movie to be good. I want him to have a good performance in it. Um, even if there is absolutely no precedent whatsoever for him having a good performance in a major motion picture. Um, it's a bit harsh. But, but look, there's a first time for everything. And, you know, it sounds like maybe this is the first time. So I'm not... 
the the mere presence of Adam Sandler is not going to be enough, at least in this particular instance, uh, for me to just completely shut off from this movie. Like I'm not, it, it's not like launching into one of my most anticipated movies of the year at all. But if I get the chance, I'll try to check it out. It's the Safety Brothers, man. It's going to be good. I mean, Good Time was good, not great, in my opinion. We'll see if Uncut Gems is able to to break a bit further into the good to great category. Yeah, we will. All right, Scott, that should just about do it for a quite long episode 59, but I quite enjoyed this one. So I think this will go down in the records as a, as a very good episode of the podcast. Yeah. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Yeah, it's all come to an end, Scott. The Cleveland <laughs> Indians. Over. Yeah, pretty much. The Cleveland Indians um, burned out. They flamed out down the stretch. I, you know, it's pretty inevitable, I guess, uh, given all their injuries. Uh, but it is a shame to look up, look back on the fact that um, we had 94 wins this season. There's one game left tomorrow, but um, 94 wins, which in an ordinary year in an ordinary American league would be, would certainly be enough to make the playoffs. Um, and uh, just wasn't the case this year. The American league was really, really brutally tough. Um, and there's nothing you can really do about that. I think a lot of Indians fans are freaking out and saying we need to fire Francona and all this stuff and criticizing the, the team and everything down the stretch. But I think to, to get 94 wins out of uh, what the Indians had. I mean, they were hobbling sort of uh, from the midway point in terms of the injuries in their lineup. So uh, I'm not, I, I, I try not to be a sheep when it comes to Indians fandom, but uh, I think people are, are being a little too negative. Um, we're all mad that we didn't make the playoffs, but uh, 94 wins is nothing to, to shake your head about. I'm sure there's some teams making the playoffs that would uh, love to have 94 wins. Yeah, no, the I don't believe the Nationals or uh, the Cardinals are getting close now, but there are a couple teams, I think, in the National League who aren't going to have as many wins as the Indians did. Got to love that playoff structure, my man. It happens. Yeah, so it goes. Also, baseball's hard to make the playoffs. That's what it is. Yeah, right. it is. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more, however, if you checked us out over on our podcast Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd really appreciate it, even if you only contributed at that $1 level and just got the episodes a little bit early. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, and you can check it out for yourself and pick up the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, Scott, we have said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies, and we'll be back next week with, let me take a deep breath, Joker. Heaven help us. All right, until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.